What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Papira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. Gonna, that's a good one, Matt. No, I'll tell you why. <laughs> Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. And today we're going to continue our discussion of Paul Muller, also known as the man from the train. Before we start, I'd like to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and check out our Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash deathrowdiaries, where you will get one bonus episode per week that is twice as many, and I think it's well worth it for the price of a cup of coffee, depending on what type of coffee you're getting, maybe even less. And uh, yeah, it uh, helps keep the show going, covers expenses, and all that. So, Bill, when we left off in part one, we were talking about the Valeska murders, and... Uh, and we kind of moved on from that because there are, I guess the whole premise here is that there's multiple incidents and and they're all possibly tied to the same guy, right? Yeah, that is correct. You kind of gave up the guy's name a minute ago, who I, I believe is the actual serial killer in this murder, but that's okay. Um, yes, we, we left off in the Velisca murders and those murders were... Uh, gruesome, and of course we saw that there was children involved. And this guy is what you would consider, you know, if he is a serial killer. At the time when this incident happened, there were the term serial killer did not exist. So authorities are thinking it was a transient, it was a guy in the village, it was someone that had a personal beef with these people. Well, none of those things are true. The the actual killer in the Velisca murders, there are really significant similarities between that murder, which happened in like 1912, and earlier ones that happened as early as 1898. And I'm going to touch on those right now so you guys can see where my thoughts are. And I've we've talked about this before, Matt, where I always talk about that if you want to catch a serial killer and you want to catch him because he's good at what he does later on, you have to go to his beginnings. You have to find his trail early on when he does one major thing, which is make mistakes. And when you find that, then you can find a pattern and catch him. And this is exactly what we've done with this guy. Um, the Velisca murders had a number of suspects. You know, the Reverend George Kelly, Frank Jones, Williams Mansfield, Lovey Mitchell, Henry Lee Moore, to name a few. 
Kelly was actually tried for the murder twice. The first trial ended in a hung jury, and the second one he was completely acquitted of. So the murders have remained unsolved. And as I mentioned, 1912 is the last of these murders that happened here. I also mentioned I would be speaking about a murder that happened in another country that is very similar to these, and I believe the same serial killer was involved. So with no further ado, let's jump back in time, you know, about 12 years, 1898. Uh, We're talking about um, Massachusetts. We're talking about a place um, in history that really has no forensics or anything else, but uh, this is definitely a case where I believe the same serial killer strikes, and it may be his first murder. He may have killed before this, but this is definitely him, and I'll go into details about the similarities in these murders that will in fact prove that this is the same guy. Yeah, so this is like kind of modern day going back and looking at this at this evidence at old newspaper clippings and old newspaper articles and piecing this together and so these are murders that happened all over the country kind of coast to coast and you're saying that that in modern day we think they're the same guy because they share certain characteristics right yeah, well, there's they're so significant. It's, you know, you're going by newspaper articles, of course, and you're going by what people are um, talking. People are talking about things. There is history ledgers. There are articles. There is interviews. And once you look at them and you see the patterns, it becomes obvious who this guy is, and that he is actually the Velisca murders uh, guy, as well as the man who in Brookfield, Massachusetts, massacred his first family. Right. And so why do you think this is the case? Well, it's simple. You have to go and take a look at this murder and what happened at this time. So the killer is a handyman. In those times, guys would come by, they would come by different homesteads, farms, ask for work, for food, or for board. This particular killer was a very good handyman. He was a craftsman. He built things. Um, He was also a, a very experienced lumberjack. And he was a murderer to top things off. And on this particular night, in 1898, um, this guy really puts his signature down or really leaves a signature that leaves little doubt in my mind that one man was um, responsible for all these murders. Now, you know, I will say that at the time of these murders, the police actually were looking for this killer. They basically knew who he was because of, you know, his vicinity to these crimes. And as I mentioned, in 1898, this killer 
gets a job, or he has a job, with a family called the Newtons. And uh, Frank Newt is a strong, six foot, over six foot tall guy in the 1800s, is a big guy. He's strong, he's intelligent, he's running a farm, and our killer gets a job there as a handyman. And he is living in the house with these folks. And on this particular morning, on January the 7th, 1898, you know, this guy decides to kill the family. And he's living inside the home. And he uses the same thing that he used in the Villisca murders 12 years later. And that is, he uses an axe. And he uses the blunt side of the axe. So let me tell you, um, the people in this house and how he killed them. So there are a lot of elements here that will give you this impression. But in this particular crime, you know, this individual comes into the house and he kills the father, Newton, of course. He kills his wife. He uses an axe on them. And then he goes into the room where there are children in the house. Now, from police reports, the Velisca murders were probably committed by a left-handed killer because of the way he swung the axe. In this report of the Massachusetts Newt home, it's the same thing. You have a left-handed perpetrator. And you can tell by the way a man swings a knife or cuts a knife or uses an axe or a baseball bat, you can tell that he's left-handed by the way he swings. And this is apparent in this case as well. Now, I don't have to leave too much... Um, like guesswork that when you hit a person with an axe across the head, and by the way, he killed everybody in the house by hitting him in the head with the blunt side of the axe. First the father, then the mother. Okay, so should I call right back? Yeah. Okay, let me call right back. Amen. Yeah, go ahead. So... You know, this case, I mean, I don't have to go into the details that the family was basically slaughtered. And, you know, just like the case in Villisca, there are a lot of comparisons. So let me go into those details so you can, you guys can judge which, if I'm on or am I completely off. So let's look at the characteristics of the Brookfield, Massachusetts murders and the Villisca crimes. So in the Brookfield murders, all, door, all doors were locked or jammed shut. Same thing with the Villisca murders. The Brookfield murders, all the window shades and blinds were completely closed. The Villisca murders, all the window shades and blinds completely closed. The Brookfield murders, the weapon, an axe. The Villisca murders, weapon, axe. Brookfield murders, the blunt side of the axe was used. Same thing with the Villisca murders. The family was attacked after they had gone to sleep in the Villisca murders. Same thing with Brookfield murders. 
all the victims were hit repeatedly in the head, some in the body, same thing in Villisca. The murders in Brookfield, the victims' heads were covered with cloth. And I mentioned before that sometimes a killer of this magnitude, people say, well, look, he covered the face so there wouldn't be blood splatter. That's completely fallacy. That's, that's complete junk. He covered the faces because sometimes serial killers cannot look at the face or look at the person as they're killing them. They don't want that person looking at them. Even if they're asleep, the eyelids being closed, it bothers them. I asked a number of different serial killers that covered faces or destroyed the face. And I asked, why did you do it? Simple reply is, I didn't want them looking at me. My question, well, their eyes were closed anyways. It doesn't matter. I didn't want them facing me. So this happens here too. Um, in the Brookfield murders, a 10-year-old girl and the mother were sexually exposed. Exposed. So that means they lifted the skirts up, lifted up their nightshirts, so they were their sexual their sexual organs were exposed. In the Velisca murders, the 12-year-old little girl was also sexually exposed. That's how they found her. In the Brookfield murders. The axe was left on the floor next to the little girl's bed. Same thing in the Velisca murders. The axe was found next to the girl's bed. The Brookfield murders. Jewelry and vases were left in plain sight. Some coins were stolen. Same thing with the Velisca murders. And here we go. The Brookfield murders. The person was left-handed. Same thing with Zaliska. Now, it so happens, Matt already mentioned, that the killer who I believe committed these crimes was Paul Muller, or Paul Miller, however you want to pronounce his name. Paul Miller, or Muller, was left-handed. And here is the big deal. At the Brookfield murders, the recently hired hand that came to work at that homestead and farm was Paul Muller. He had been hired by Mr. Newton as a, as a, a stable hand, as a carpenter, as an axeman. So much so that the night of the murders or the morning when they were discovered, Paul Muller was nowhere to be seen. When the police began to investigate this case, a number of people saw Paul Muller heading for the, de the train depot at 11.30 at night. He was living at the house. He was the only one not found that night or the next morning or never after that. After that date, January the 7th, 1898, Paul Muller disappeared from sight and had never been heard of again. Of course, the Villisca murders there are different people that were described. Paul Muller was short, five foot three to five foot four, about 155 pounds, had a heavy German accent, said that he was a timber guy, a lumberjack in Germany. He had long, greasy, dark hair, didn't speak very well. He had tiny, spaced out teeth. And everybody described the same type of guy around the homestead. This is 
who I believe committed these crimes. And it's obvious that the Newton home was probably either his first or one of his first families that he murdered. The evidence is overwhelmingly positive that it's him. And so is that one of the first because of the, just the chronology in the reports or because of the way he haphazardly kind of left and exposed himself? Well, it exposes a signature and an MO. I mean, Paul Muller is the man working at this homestead in 1898. He's working there the night this murders happened. He's still working there, and then they never find out after that. There wasn't another killer that just took him with him and decided to kill the family. The reason I know it was him is because the evidence is overwhelmingly abundant that Paul Muller killed that family. Now, we don't have evidence that he lived at the house where the Velisca murders happened. But the MO and the signature are the same. I named, I don't know, about 10 or 15, 10 or 11 different uh, instances that everything was identical. That he bore it at the house, that he covered the faces of the, of the, the victims. All that the, the, there was the mother and the daughter were sexually molested. These are all things that the killer of the Velisca murder did. And they're identical. There are no two killers that do everything identically the same. And back then, you didn't have copycat murders because he wasn't picking the newspaper and decided, okay, I'm going to do the same identical thing 12 years later because I'm going to copy this guy who did it in 1898 in Brookfield, Massachusetts. And this is obviously the same man. Now, we don't have evidence that he was working at this homestead at the time, meaning Paul Muller, but we have evidence of the same perpetrator. So if Paul Muller killed the Brookfield family, then he obviously killed the Velisca family as well. See where my point is? Yeah, for sure. And this happens several times. As I mentioned, there are at least 14 different families slaughtered with an axe, the blunt side of an axe between 1898 and the Velisca murders in 2012. They also have a very uh, distinct geographic component, which is that all the families that were killed were very near a train depot or a, fr- a train off-ramp where you could get off a train, get on a train, or a train stop there. All of them were extremely close. So in my opinion, this transient, this particular person, who is Paul Muller, is jumping from train to train. That's how he's traveling. And he's getting off the train, he's coming in, he's killing the family, and then he jumps back into a train and leaves the scene. Right. Right. And so he's killing people that are in kind of rural like homestead settings um, without any neighbors. He's covering the windows. So in a lot of these, it's going to be a while before he's noticed or, or before the the scene is noticed. And by then he's gone. He could be anywhere in the country and there's no real centralized, um, you know, agency to 
try and figure out where he is, right? Yeah, well, remember, this is, like you said, this is this is a hundred and some years ago. Most of these farms, they have neighbors, but they're significantly um, far away from the home. Now, in the Villisca murders, it was a town, it was a small town, but the house was a bit isolated because it was a little bit off the beaten path, but there was a train station right there. And it, and it, and it remember, these guys, this particular murderer is an organized killer. He's not a random guy. He picks his families because usually there is a preteen child, girl, in the house, which he uses because this guy is a sadistic sexual predator. You know, he's not very good looking. The space teeth, the long greasy hair, probably didn't have a lot of luck with women or girls. So his mind continues to go to child, to children, because that's when he started having his first urges. He couldn't exercise it because he probably could not afford prostitutes. He probably couldn't uh, get regular dates. He's a transient. He's an ugly guy. He's an ugly little guy. So this begins to form who he is. Remember, this guy is a killer to begin with. But now, you got to understand, using an axe takes a lot of effort. It, take, it makes it a very gruesome scene. So there's a very good chance that, and I'm speaking from experience from other killers I've talked to, serial killers, that tell me that the blood, the smell, that copper smell turns them on. With this guy using an axe and getting the blood splatter on himself, when you start hacking at somebody with the blood part of an axe, there's a substantial amount of blood being thrown everywhere, on the walls, on the perpetrator himself. So he would be smelling this blood very powerfully. It's something that overwhelms the entire room. He's not killing one person. He's killing several people. In Villisca, it's eight people. In Newton, it's the entire family. So you can imagine the, the bloodlust, the frenzy he's getting himself into. At the end of this, there is that moment of sexual climax for him. And now look, I want you guys not to go back to a modern day serial killer. BTK was very similar. His first known victims were the Ortega family. He kills the entire family. Then he takes the preteen child, a little girl, into the basement where he ties her and has her hanging herself with her own weight while he masturbates. This is very similar. And you can see BTK worked himself into a frenzy. Then he has his sexual climax. Paul Muller, the man from the train, because he jumps off a train and does his bidding, is the same type of killer. He likes to work himself up. It's a psychological profile I'm making. I'm not a psychologist, but I've known more serial killers than anybody on earth. And this is something they have in common. The ones that like to work their way up or work themselves up do something very similar. They're all humans. They're all different, but they're humans. And you can see how certain people, for example, you go out with a, with a young woman on a day at 16. 
there's usually a bunch of like fumbling and screwing around before you get to the next place, which is sexual intercourse at some point. It takes maybe a couple months to get there. These serial killers are somewhat similar. They play around. They're almost adolescents when it comes to killing. But once they realize what they like and what gets their juices flowing and how they get there, the MO is usually the same or the signature because they have to go through his little ritual to get where they need to get. And Paul Muller does it in every case that I've tried. Throughout his career as a serial killer, all the way to the Velisca murders, he does the same basic things. There are small nuances that are different, but that happens. And MO changes as the serial killer begins to learn and perfect his style. Let me call you back, Matt. Hey, man. Yeah, so I'm a little confused. He's a farmhand, basically. And yes. he has some skills as a lumberjack, I guess, but he's pretty poor. I get the feeling a lot of these places he's almost working for room and board or just minimal money. So why isn't he, after the fact, at least taking some of the you know, some of the money or valuables. Well, he doesn't really take the valuables. In some of the cases, he rifled through the, the, the man's pockets. And I think that has to do with the man of the house being the provider. So he took from that because he is the provider. The girls had watches on. There was a substantial amount of money in the Velisca home as well as the, the Massachusetts home in 1898. There was money in plain sight when he didn't touch it. Because all those serial killers sometimes take valuables or take money sometimes. In this case, the primary motive behind these murders was sex. It was sexual in nature. He was there because the young preteen girls are what he focused on. Yeah, I guess I'm just looking at it like, not to be callous about it, but he's already committed this horrific crime and he's broke. So why not just take the money that's sitting there? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult for me to give you the exact reason. Every serial killer is different. Every crime scene is different. It's a moving, breathing element. I'm sitting here and just showing the biggest, um, I guess, similarities that show a pattern. You know, I went from the very end, which is the Velisca murders in the United States, to the very beginning, which are the Brookfield, Massachusetts murders of the Newton family. And from there, there is an in-between, which we're going to cover in the next episodes to come through. But I think what I'm, I want the, the audience to really look at is, and you can look this guy up. The reason that this guy is such, it is the subject is because he is absolutely guilty of the murders. There is no doubt in my mind. It is what he did after that, that convinced me that he's probably, if not the most prolific serial killer in US history, at least the top three, and he never got caught. And people have never drawn ref inference to this guy being a serial killer. There was a lot of families being murdered back then, but only 14 in this 
particular fashion, which gives you pause because how did two different people get it exactly the same? They don't. I can trace this guy to 14 family murders, 59 victims. There's another 25 murders or 25 families that were murdered in similar fashion, but there are distinct differences. So it possibly could be him, but I don't think so. His reign was between 1898 and 1912, and there are only 14 families that were murdered in that same identical form with those same about 20 to 30 uh, similarities are so distinguished that you can't make a mistake of who the person is, who the perpetrator is. Right. But to be a little bit of a contrarian, a lot of the characteristics are something that I'd say many or most serial killers do, like all the sexual stuff. That's extremely common, right? So th- does that necessarily count? Well, yeah, you're right. There are similarities with other murders too, but the distinct part is that he would leave the murder weapon in the girl's room. The victims that I'm speaking of all had defensive wounds, meaning the children, the child that was sexually molested. The other people didn't have any wounds. He ambushed them at night. The same MO is true in the other ones. So to find a serial killer who is ambushing families, complete families, if he could have went in the house and taken the child, but he doesn't. He goes into the home, and he probably had something to do with the family. He probably worked there. He knew the family. That's all possible. And he covers the windows very tightly. He puts sheets over the faces of the, the ambush victims. At the very end, he leaves an axe next to the child that he molests. He also has the windows boarded up or closed. All the the doors are locked. He leaves through a window. Why would other perpetrators leave through windows and leave all the doors closed? It's the same guy. There's too many coincidences, too many similarities to attribute these murders to another killer. It's impossible that two killers or three or four killers are doing the same. And let's just... Let's play devil's advocate for a moment. Let's just say that I'm wrong. That it's not Paul Muller. That's another serial killer. But it's the same serial killer. It's the same MO. It's the same signature. This guy, like today, do we have any serial killer that kills identically the same as somebody else? The answer is no. Back then, it's the same thing. You don't have a killer running around town killing or around the United States jumping off a train, killing entire families, sexually molesting a preteen girl, leaving the axe. So why is he always using an axe? And the axe is always a tool that was already in the house, so he'd already seen the axe there. That leads me to believe that he had some type of working relationship with the family. You see how it works? Yeah. Yeah. And also, so he's going to kill the the father the patriarch first and of course that makes sense because that's the person most likely to to stop him or to even kill him or restrain him or whatever but there's an element where he just wants to get 
that out of the way and maybe even the wife so that he can get to the children, right? No, absolutely. This is, you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head. But look, let's look at it this way, too. He's a very small man, about five foot three to about five foot five. No bigger than that. He's about 150 pounds. He's a very small man. So that would tell you that if you attack the father, the male, the breadwinner, the, the, basically the defense of the family is a smart move. But let's look, let, look at it in a different format. Let's just say that his father was abusive or he sees the father as an authoritative figure that he never liked. It would give you pause that he killed him first because he hated him just as much. And the children were the offspring. So he wanted to molest the children. He wanted to kill the children, destroy the family because he never had a family. All these are elements that could explain why he does the things the way he does them. This guy is very specialized. If you look at what he does, if he was doing this today, he'd be considered a very specialized killer. He uses the same weapon, the same method. Everything is the same. He doesn't change it for 12 years. Yeah. Well... I guess we could look at some historical factors, but it seems a little odd to me. So in 1897, this guy's in his mid-30s. And so he's not a young guy, like especially given that time. He's not old. I mean, I'm sure he's in fine health, but how does this guy even end up in America, a German guy? Well, there was a lot of immigrants. That we got to start talking about how the United States was formed in the very early 1900s and late 1800s. There's huge migrations of German-born, Italian-born, and Jewish people coming into Ellis Island in different parts of the United States because it's a land of opportunity and all this stuff. So there's a lot of German immigrants, Jewish people, Italian people in the United States at this time. So that's how he gets here. And look, a lot of guys leave and come back or arrive here and then leave. And, and that's one of the things that, you know, I'm going to talk about a little bit also is there is a break in the murders. In about 1908, for almost 11 to 13 month period, there are no murders. Completely, he goes off the, the grid of path. I mean, they have a they put for the for the um, the Newton murders. There was a manhunt for him for about a year and a half. The police, the authorities, the newspaper—they believed that Paul Muller was the killer, and they had a warrant for his arrest for the Newton murders. Because of that, because of what police were saying and doing at that time, and that they were so convinced. They were so convinced that he was the perpetrator because of all the things that were happening. Then you you have a situation where the cops already know who this guy is. What I'm doing is connecting the dots on the MO and signature. I'm saying there's no way that a different perpetrator, a different serial killer, is killing in the same identical way a year later, five years later, ten years later, twelve years later. It's not possible. It's virtually impossible. 
that's where the connection comes of what I'm talking about. The cops already had Paul Miller or Muller in on their sites. They just couldn't even find him. He disappeared. He literally disappeared. And in, two, and in 1908, there are no murders. I believe he was arrested for something else. Maybe a bar fight. Maybe he was caught stealing something. But they put him in jail for about a year. When he gets out, which I believe he gets out, he picks up where he left off in 1909, 1910, 1911, 1912. He's killing again. And then it stops again. Well, people would say, well, he died. You know, that's, that's 12 years after he's 35. So he's about 47. 47 is a relatively pretty young guy. I understand that at that time and period, you're older in age, but if he's working outdoors as a lumberjack and he's swinging an axe all the time, he's probably a really small guy, but he's very strong. He's robust. You see these guys, these wiry guys that are 47, 50 years of age. Look at uh, 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 Scott Glenn, the actor. You know, kind of small guy, very wiry, very muscular. He's in his 50s. This is the kind of guy this guy is. Outdoors guy, carpenter works with his hands, he would be in pretty good health unless he had a bad accident. I don't believe that to be true. So why do the murders stop in, in, in 1912? It is my opinion that he left the United States and went back to his homeland in Germany. And please ask the question, Matt, well, Bill, how do you know that? Yeah, Bill, how do you know that? Well, I didn't find any ledger well, I can't, you know, I really can't do a whole lot of research from here. But about 10 years later, there's another murder. And this murder really raised my eyebrows. It's about 10 years later. It's in 1922. Actually, it's March 31st, 1922. Six people in a small homestead near... Munich, Germany, are murdered by an unknown assailant. And the victims are, and hear me out on this one, the first one is a gentleman by the name of Andreas Gruber. He's 63. His wife, she's 72. Their widowed daughter, Victoria Gabriel, is 35. But she has children. Now, I'm going to mess up her last name, but it's something like Salila, age seven, and Joseph, age two. And they have a maid in the house named Maria. She's 44 years of age. So when I call back, I will get into this case, and I will show you why Paul Muller left Germany, and he committed the Hinkerkafik, yeah, I know I'm screwing that name, that murders, in near Munich, Germany. Yeah, so let's talk about the murders in Germany. Yeah, so it's the Goober family, of course. It's, you know, home invasion, mass murder. And, and, and look, I encourage you to look at these murders. Um, it's pronounced Hinterkaffeck murders. H-I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-F-E-C-K murders. And they happen in Germany. And the date was March 31st, 1922. And the weapon, ladies and gentlemen, was something called a 
ladies and gentlemen, it's an axe. Okay? So, a lot of similarities. Bodies stacked. Um, there is a very young child, seven years of age, girl. She is what seems to be sexually molested. You know, the entire family is butchered. All with the back of the axe, the blunt part, not the front of the axe. It happens to be Germany, where this guy's from. And in 1912, he leaves the United States because there are no murders after that. So he dropped dead all of a sudden? I doubt that. He just changed his playing ground to his home country of Germany. Yeah, well, I mean, I could just, uh, you know, I guess to tell people to just look this guy up and um, we can next, the next episode, I'll go into like two more murders happening like 1903 and 1906 and we'll leave it at that and we'll say, ladies and gentlemen, the murder of this guy is the man from the train, is Paul Muller and we encourage you to take a look at it and leave it at that, right? And we get three episodes out of it. All right, and so then that doesn't conclude the murders. There are more uh, coming across the ocean um, back here in well, in America. So um, we want to get into those next time and then really try and nail this guy down. So um, Correct. Yeah. The, um, yeah, I went from the, from the Deliska murders, which was his last day, to his first one. I wanted to tie it tie a, a line of timeline between these and I wanted to show the actual um, well, identical natures of, of these crimes and the next time we uh, come here I will give you a number of other murders that happened between those times that will tie all these murders together and you can decide on your own whether you believe I'm correct now there are there are there is a book written called Man from the Train. It's written by a guy by the name of Bill James. Bill James and I concur in that Paul Muller, Paul Muller is the perpetrator. Now, I've read this book and the investigative work is fantastic. The guy that wrote the book couldn't write his way out of a wet paper bag. I mean, it's horribly written because he jumps back and forth, in and out. It's just, I would have done it differently. But his investigation is solid. So um, we'll leave it like that, uh, Matt. And um, we'll, next time we'll come back to these final murders to give you guys a pretty good um, detailed view of who Paul Muller is and was. Okay, yeah. So we'll leave it there for now. And we'll be back next time. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm Lou Nagara. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it. We'll see you next time.